Thank you for tuning in to the Diary of an Addict. Today, I have a special guest joining us. Um, she's actually my cousin, but we've kind of <laughs> grown apart. I kind of grown apart from everybody. You know, I don't. I'm not trying to put any blame on anybody, but you know, when you go down <laughs> that road, you kind of like isolate from everyone, including your closest to friend, friends and family. So. Uh huh. But I've got to watch her story from afar, and it's it's awesome to see. Uh, I like seeing, I ain't going to lie, I like seeing when you're dad, man. I, I love seeing those moments because I have daughters. Oh, yeah. Too, and I can only imagine, like, how proud he must be in those moments. Like, Yeah. Um, thank you for agreeing to share your story. I know it's, uh, it's kind of tough. <laughs> But it's it's kind of a necessary thing. I've I found that most things like post I don't want to say post addiction, but like post rock bottom moments, like on this side of the um, journey. Yep. A lot of things are hard, but it's it seems like the hard things are stuff that you need. You know. Oh yeah, for sure. Um. All right. Let's just get right to it. Um. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners who may not know you? Um. Tell us where you're from, what race you are. Uh, did you grow up with one or both parents? Uh, did you ever see them use or drink? So my name is Alex Taylor. Um, I'm from Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, what was the rest of the question? Oh, <laughs> it's all right. Um, <laughs> did you grow up with one or both parents or with a grandparent? Because that's a common theme with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if, regardless of that, did you see your guardian or whoever raised you, did you ever see them use their drink? So I did grow up with both parents in the home. Um, my dad would drink, you know, like socially and stuff, but uh, my mom is a really heavy drinker um, and also has siblings, too use drugs as well so it was definitely around when I was growing up so did you I know you said your dad drank socially and your mom was a heavy drinker did he when she was drinking would he not drink or no they would drink together um but my dad's the kind of person that can you know drink a little bit and wake up the next day and go to work and stuff and my mom, you know, she drank from the time she woke up till the time she went to bed at night. So um, she just kind of, you know, ever does it. Yeah. So did it, um, with a lot of people, that becomes normalized, you know, the drinking. Like, they just think that it's something that you do, especially if uh, your guardians, your role models, the people that are that you look up to are doing it, you know. Was that yeah. like that for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it did seem like a normal thing to do. Um, I can remember being a kid, and my mom and dad would have friends over, and I'd be the one making them mixed drinks and stuff. So it definitely just seemed like it was something that you're supposed to do with your friends when you're hanging out and stuff. How how old were you when you were being a bartender? Uh, uh, I would say, like, Maybe like nine, ten. Did you, uh, was your first experience with uh, alcohol or did you drink? Um, Were you 
I think I remember like a time or two, um, you know, when I was in high school, I would sneak some alcohol out of the mini fridge or pour some vodka in a water bottle, but it just really wasn't, wasn't, uh, what I was into, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't appealing to you. No, I didn't like the way it tastes. So. Yeah. I, uh, that's, that's funny that you say that because, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, like, uh, I, I'm really into like fitness on this side, you know, like trying to, yeah. at first I was trying to, I felt like, um, negate some of the negative stuff that I put my body through, you know, like not taking yeah. care of it, right. Not exercising, you know, not even like practicing like little things every day yeah. that people take for granted. So, oh, yeah. we, were talking, we were talking about protein shakes and I was like, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like alcohol. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, <laughs> nobody drinks alcohol for the taste. Nobody right. drinks shakes for the taste. They're drinking it for the effect, you know. So. Yeah. But they looked at me crazy, so it's fine. I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, so what was appealing to you? Uh, and how old were you when these other things started appealing to you? Um... I would say I was around 15 or 16, um, probably around the time my brother was just getting really heavy into stuff, and I, you know, snuck into his room once or twice and stole, he would sell pills and stuff, so I snuck in there and took a couple, tried them, and I didn't like them then either, so, you know, um, so I was an athlete, played sports and stuff. Um, and when I was a senior in high school, I had a surgery on my shoulders. And I think that's really when, you know, the pain pill addiction kind of took off. Um, so probably like 16, 17. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's sorry to hear that. That's, um, I want to say it's crazy though, but I, now, like, as I, you know, as I use this, help use this platform to let people tell their stories and stuff, I've realized that there's a lot in common we have, you know, when it comes to people struggling, even, oh, yeah. even people that aren't in active addiction, you know. But when I say that, I say that because, like, my journey, like, my spiral down began also with a shoulder surgery. <laughs> I was playing football in college, so, like, when you said that, like, I kind of like, man, I'm like, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, and I yeah. know sometimes people say they do and they don't, but this time, like, I know exactly what you, which shoulder was it? Both of them. Both of them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Six months one apart from each other. I had to have my labrums repaired because I tore both of them in my shoulders. So. Did, uh, but yeah. Did you recover from that? Like in the sense of were you able to continue playing your sport or did that contribute to you not being able to play anymore? Um, I mean, I, I feel like if I would have, you know, done the physical therapy and stuff like I was supposed to, I mean, I can shoot and stuff and all that yeah. nowadays. But back then, I, you know, wasn't really, didn't really do it like I was supposed to. So, um yeah. I had a um, 
so many questions come to mind just because, like I said, I know, uh, kind of know the experience. You know, I'm not going to say exactly because, you know, I was playing football, you're playing basketball. So there's a couple of differences, but, um, I think it's the same concept though. <laughs> yeah. And especially with the sports, you know, like for me, um, well, you know how we grew up. I know how you grew up. You grew up playing sports. We did too. Yeah. Um, but as for us, you know, we just had our mom. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, sports became not only like an escape from like the, the mm. kind of poverty we're living in, but it also became a vehicle that allowed me to yeah. like travel with like AAU, these NATO yeah. tournaments and eventually mm-hmm. college. So, uh, when I hurt my shoulder and I wasn't able to play the sport, you know, I kind of felt like my self worth at that time, like, and until that point of time, it's probably that the lowest it's ever been because I had tied up so much of my identity into being an mm-hmm. athlete. So that's what I was just going to ask you, like if it was anything like that for you. Yes, uh, 100% everything that you said. Um, you know, I mean, and I feel like it's the same in any kind of sport, you know, when you put that much time and effort into something and then uh, – you don't have it anymore. It's like, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> but, um, yeah, basketball, every sport I played really was kind of like my escape. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, my dad loves me and stuff. My mom loves me and stuff. Um, but, uh, I was in middle school, you know, when my mom tried to kill herself. So, Every sport that I played back then, you know, it was kind of an escape to just, like, keep my mind off of things. Um, And I think that's, you know, what played a part. And when the pain got introduced, when I had my surgery, you know, I was at an age at a point in my life where I was like, man, this just makes me not care about anything. Like, this, I've spent so much time, you know, worried and scared, and this kind of shut everything off, so... You know, I think that your age and, you know, development at the time that that drug of choice gets introduced into your life has a lot to do with a lot of things. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it was was definitely an escape for me um, and a time to just not think about anything except for that. Yeah. I get that 100%. It became your new escape. Uh, yes. And for me, it was like, man, I <clears throat> I used football to escape from, like, all the other stuff, you know, just uh, and a lot of it, you know, I feel like I placed on myself pressure because uh, I had mm-hmm. you know, family and friends that supported me that, you know, helped me along my journey in some way, whether that be you know, uh, picking me up from my house and giving me a ride to practice or taking me to a game while my mom had to work or anything like that. And, you know, I felt yeah. like I, not only was I letting myself down, but I was letting all them down. And now oh, the yeah. escapes that I used for that is gone also. So then I found the escape that the pain pills gave me, and it gave me an escape from everything plus yeah. football. You know what I mean? So I was, oh, yeah. it, was, it was like a perfect storm of bad events. And, yes. and then knowing I don't I know what you were saying, I agree with that wholeheartedly about the uh the age and the stages of development that you're in, like cognitively and when mm-hmm. you get introduced to drugs. But also the fact that 
your mom, I'm not, I'm, when I'm, I'm not trying to vilify her by no means, but your mom being an alcoholic like that made you 40 more times or 40 times more likely to become addicted than somebody who didn't have a parent that struggled. Yeah. And it, was, it was the same for me. And I didn't know that because I didn't grow up with my father who is also, he can also drink and wake up and go to work the next morning, but that he still drinks a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be- yeah. Because he's able to do that. He don't like have to limit himself, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, right. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I didn't know that he lived that way. So I don't know that it would have changed anything, but it certainly would have made me more cautious when dealing with habit forming substances, you know, but right. I just like to say that just for anybody listening, because sometimes people don't. And a lot of times, uh, in communities like ours, one parent, and sometimes both parents are missing. So you might be growing up and you might not know your parents. You might be gra- uh, raised by a relative, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, you know, and mm-hmm. you may not ever know. Both your parents might be alcoholics. Both your parents might struggle with substance abuse, you know, and then the numbers for you to become addicted are like skyrocketing now. And that's unbeknownst to you. You might just go try to drink, have a drink socially and, you know, like, start a bad dream mm-hmm. that you never Maybe thought about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're 16, you're 17. Uh, they gave you, the doctor gave you the pills, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Prescribed them after my surgery. Uh, oh. Yeah. What, um, so what happened? What, give me a, like a guide me through what happens next. You, you're upset. Uh, not go ahead. Go ahead. What were you saying? I was just going to say you're in this moment. You have started doing these pills that have given you an escape from the only thing that used to give you an escape from just life. Um, so what 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 happens next? Well, um, you know, eventually they don't refill your prescription anymore. So then it's like. Well, this other thing's gone now. What do I do now? Um, so, you know, I knew my brother was messing with pills and stuff. Um, so, you know, I just figured out that you could, you could buy them on the street <laughs> pretty much, you know, and, uh, got to the point where I realized that I was, uh, didn't feel good if I didn't have them. Um, so that was my first experience with like withdrawal and stuff because, you know, when you have surgery and stuff, they, they don't really like, you know, take you off of them properly. At least they didn't back then. Um, they're just like, well, you're out of luck. We're not going to refill them anymore. So, uh, I started buying them on the street. That's, uh, for me, whenever I had to make that transition, because I made it, I tried to make it last because, um, I was in college and you're right. They don't, they, they do stop refilling your prescription. So what what I would do, like what I did, I mean, it wasn't just solely to get more pills, but it, it was a, a nice bonus was that I started a big school and then I went to a smaller school. And when I was there, I told the new doctor who didn't know anything about it, you know, Hey, I think they did something wrong. Like, my shit is still <laughs> Yeah. And they just threw me some more, you know, but 
when I finally got from that, all I did was just delay the inevitable. You know, when I yeah. finally, when they finally stopped and I couldn't get no more doctor to write, you know, his prescriptions. Man, Alex, I realized I had a habit that, man, I could not afford. And like mm-hmm. you say, the first withdrawals are like, man, this is the worst. Like, yeah. You don't it's really like know what that either. Like they don't prepare you for how you're going to feel uh, when you don't have them anymore. So yeah, I think that's changed nowadays to where you know they will take those proper precautions to take people off of them the right way and warn them about you know how you're going to feel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I don't know exactly what calendar year yours happened. Mine happened in 2008. And at that time, the National Journal of Medicine, like, which was like the one of the main precursors of the opiate epidemic in the whole country, mm-hmm. they were saying that the Oxycontin pills were non-habit forming. Yep. And so at the time, you know, they, I don't even know that it wasn't from, um, like just them wanting to not tell us so that they didn't even know themselves to be able to tell us, hey, these, you know, we got to be careful with these. They, they're really addictive, you know, so. Yeah, it, I think they got sold a dream that they bought into and it wasn't real. <laughs> yeah, it happens, happens a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my, it, mine was in uh, 2010, 2011. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was around the same time. But yeah. Yeah, when I realized, like, even though I found out, you know, I was like, yes, I can buy them on the streets, you know, and then I'm like, well, how much are they? And then when I when I told me how much they were, I about fell out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, uh, you know, did a lot of things that uh, I wasn't proud of, like killing and stuff and to support my habit. And looking back on it, I'm just like, man, I'm so stupid. <laughs> Uh, we gotta. Uh, everything happens for a reason, and I know. Yep. In that season, you know, in those seasons when it's raining outside, it's storming, it's cold, it's windy. There ain't no shelter nearby. Like you're not really seeing the reason, you know. But when it all clears up, you see that it made you to who you are today. So. Yeah. I I think we all did things, you know, and that's a a part of the reason I say this. Like, you don't have to elaborate if you don't want to. I just appreciate you even just bringing that fact up because, you know, shame is a big factor in people not finding recovery. I guess they they yeah. feel like they're, they're too ashamed. They feel like they don't deserve a good life because of some of the things that they've done. And I just want to say at this point that, man, there's. If you sat down with somebody in recovery, <clears throat> I know if you sat down with me, like I could tell you some stuff that I would not even say on this podcast, you know, and you'd be like, oh my God. So I just Thanks. don't want you to, I just don't want people to think that you're ever at a point where you're too far gone, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, I, like I said, I've done a lot of things that I, I wasn't and still aren't proud of, but I've also, you know, been able to do a lot of things in recovery uh, that I am proud of. Uh, that outweighs any amount of shame and guilt that I can feel, you know, and beat myself up for. Um, you know, I have been able to do things that I am proud of. So, like you said, everything does happen for a reason. That's awesome. I'm uh, I'm glad to hear that. I want to I want you to tell me all about the stuff you're proud of in a minute. But from 
for now, I want you to tell me if you can. The, you're telling me you, you were already doing things you weren't proud of. When was the moment, like your rock bottom moment, that made you decide, you know, like, for me, I was like, fuck this shit. You know, that's exactly what I said, like, in my head, out loud, fuck this shit. I was in a holding cell. I was experiencing the worst withdrawals of my life. Um, I, I thought I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, when I say that, like, I know people think I'm exaggerating, but, like, <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Even the guards thought I was going to die. Like, the you know, yeah. guards... They took me from my holding cell to the hospital so the hospital could make sure that I was all right and wasn't going to die, you know, so it was like that bad. Yeah. So what was your moment? Um, so, you know, I had been in drug court and sent to rehab, but it wasn't necessarily like that wasn't my moment that I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, it was something that I was kind of being forced to do at the time. Um, so I, I would say that my moment when I was finally done and had enough and actually wanted to do something different, I had went to rehab in Memphis and I had ended up staying out there and, you know, I had relapsed and stuff and I had started doing heroin at this point. Um, yeah, and I was in a relationship with this with this girl, and uh, she ended up dying, passing away from she got a blood infection from you know IV drug use and stuff. So, and then I ended up going to jail out there because I was running from drug court, and you know my dad, who loves me very much, I had called him when everything was going on, and he drove nine hours all the way out there. Uh, to be with me and then so graciously out of love, you know, had told the sheriff's department that I had a warrant. So they arrested me, you know, he was trying to save my life and he didn't know what else to do. So if he hadn't done that, um, ain't no telling where I'd be today. Uh, but I, you know, was in jail in Cherokee and I was in segregation and I just remember sitting there, you know, just me and my thoughts and, you know, all this pain that I was feeling from losing this person that I loved. And, um, you know, it just, it just got to be too much. And yeah, I tried to kill myself in my jail cell. Um, and then at that point I was like, I, you know, I, this ain't, this ain't it, you know? So from that point, you know, I got to go to rehab again. And I think that was my rock bottom of you got to do something different or you're not gonna, or you're not gonna, you know, be where you want to be. Yeah. Um, first I want to say like, uh, I always, I always mention this to people because I know, I know probably in the moment when you were like, he's so gracious, we told him about your warrant. He was probably so <laughs> mad at him. You I know was pissed. I mean? <laughs> you probably cussing him, you know what I mean? I, oh, can, yeah. I can only imagine. But you know the place of love that, that that action has to come from? You know, no parent wants to see their kid locked up, you know. So for him to, like, just say, you know, but she needs this. Like, that's coming from a place of love that I, I don't even, few people even possess, you know what I oh, mean? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. And you also, know, he's always like, I'll, I'll, you know, beside you and I'll hold your hand while you're doing this, but I can't do it for you. And you've got to, you know, make that decision for yourself, but I'll be here to support you every step of the way. Um, yeah, he, he saved my life that day. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear those moments. And when you can, it speaks to the growth of people when you can look back and laugh, you know, cause I know yeah. laughing is the furthest thing from your mind the day it happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was mad, boy. I was so mad. Uh, um, that sucks about your partner too. Um, I just want to also say this to everybody. Uh, it's also reminded to myself because sometimes, you know, I, I don't know if it happens to you, but I've lost people close to me also. And sometimes oh, yeah. I'm like, man, I, I kind of feel guilty for still being here. But in those moments, mm-hmm. I tell myself, you know, we gotta, we gotta live life to the max, you know, for those people. Oh, yeah. They didn't get the chance to, you know, there's yeah. people. There's people locked up doing 30 years, I know, right now that don't get the chance to, even though they're still alive, you know, so. Yeah, man. (laughs) Grief is a a powerful thing, and you can either let it destroy you or you can use it to to grow. And, uh, you know, I just had to make a decision that I wasn't going to let her death go in vain, you know, and I used that to motivate myself to just, keep going, you know, in the beginning. Well, uh, did you go to Con from Cherokee or did you go somewhere else? Did I go where? Did you go to the Conawoti rehab in Snowbird or did you go to a different one from Cherokee? No, they, I don't think they had that. Um, back when I went, this would be 2015 when I went to rehab, I went to, um, ADAC in Black Mountain. And then <clears throat> from there, I went to Swain Recovery Center, uh, which was right next to it. And uh, I had to make the decision. Um, I just felt like it was best for me, you know, to not come back to Cherokee for a little bit. And uh, I decided to go to a halfway house in Asheville um, and just ended up staying there for uh, about eight years. I just moved back like a month ago. Cherokee so oh yeah how how's that transition um it's going good you know I got my anxiety you know I do suffer from anxiety so I do get anxiety going places but it's getting better I think it's just getting reacclimated to being over here um but it's going good I think it was just time for me to to come back you know yeah, that's uh I was gonna ask you that too before you said that. It's another crazy well that ain't crazy. Um, cause I live in Florida. Uh um, when I say I left Cherokee, like the last release date I had, like they released me at like nine AM and then like when I tell you I left with the quickness like nine thirty five, I was in <laughs> Georgia. I was in Georgia already, you know what I mean? Like uh Yeah. So I was just wondering, and I know a lot of people, I'm not, I don't ever want to say anything bad about the res. Like you can't, there are people right now proving and like making big moves in the recovery movement with what they're doing in Cherokee. But for me, I tried multiple times in Cherokee. I tried and failed. I tried unsuccessfully to go to the path I'm currently on. So I, 
I'd just like to uh, also uh, reinforce the idea that everybody's journey is different. You know, you mm-hmm. some people might some people might not have to leave. Some people might have to go across the world, and that's okay. Both instances <laughs> are okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, what what what's the stuff that I want you to give me the good stuff now. This is this is my favorite part. Um, the stuff you've done recently that you said you're proud of. I, I spoke to some stuff earlier. What I seen your dad posting about. I just wanted you to tell us about it. Um, what you currently do um, uh, for a living and other stuff like that. Well, right now, currently, I work for the uh, community paramedic program in Buncombe County, um, which is an awesome program, and I think that every county should have one. Um, So I'm a peer support specialist uh, with them, and our paramedics can, uh, they respond to overdoses, so it's technically called like the post-overdose response team. So our paramedics respond to the overdoses. Um, every overdose in the county, and they can, um, after it's been so long since the person used, uh, they can induct them with um, Suboxone um, in the community. They go to them, meet them wherever they're at, um, and then they get them set up with uh, appointments at local uh, MAT providers. And then they pass them off to the peer support to work with them for up to a year. Um, and, you know, that I think that uh, medication-assisted treatment is a good option to have. You know, I've lost plenty of friends that I wish that they would have just, you know, took a chance with Suboxone. Um, I've seen it turn lives around and, you know, give people a second chance that might not have felt like they had one. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I currently do. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I didn't realize the scope of what y'all actually did, you know, um, being a paramedic and working with that, I thought it was pretty awesome in itself, but that, what y'all are doing, it's like, <clears throat> you're giving people a head start. Um, yeah. Cause half the problem is getting to the people, you know what I mean? So meeting them yep. where they're at is such a big difference. And then being able to go ahead and administer the first dose of Suboxone, like right there, that that's that's huge. Yep. Um, and then they they will dose them every day until they get their first appointment. So every day they go to their homes, to their jobs, to wherever they need to go to meet them at, and they do that every day until they get in with a provider. So it's pretty cool. It's almost like a, a no excuses model. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's there's no excuse now. Like we'll we'll come to you where you're at with the stuff. Like yep. Now now it just takes it a that's a that's really awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, I also want to say I I support MAT too. I support any model of recovery that somebody's on. You know, I know there's people that's Cali sober. I know yeah. people that <laughs> don't do any drugs, but they drink. You know, um, I. If you're doing better, even if you just do less, you know, even if you're not right. even doing less, if you if you use with somebody there with you with a clean needle and you have right. an arcane on hand, I feel like that's doing better than you were doing, you know. Right. So I, yeah. I support all that stuff. I, I think that a lot of people, and I think that MAT, you know, is like stigmatized also with. Oh, yeah. 
it's a stigma within a stigma, which is kind of crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> when you, you think know, about it a lot. I got clean, you know, going to NA meetings and stuff. Um, and I remember, you know, a few years ago, if you were on Suboxone, you were looked down on, you know, and I just never, never got that. But I just hope that more people can understand that, you know, it gives people a chance, a chance to live, a chance to change, it, change their life. Um, you know, it's just, it's about giving people chances. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I I support that statement 100% because I know for me it took chances. You know, I can't even say that. Oh, yeah. Taking a chance because I think I'm on like live five or six, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just having the opportunity to get up and try again, you know. Mm I know when people were kids, I always try to give them this analogy. Like, when you played Mario, you didn't want to play with just one life, you know? How right. fun is that? <laughs> you, know? you don't get very far with just one yeah. chance. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, if you um, if you could go back and talk to the young Alex in, in the height, in the height, I don't want to say height. I think that's kind of paradoxical in a way to say the height of an active addiction because – Although you might be using the most, like you're probably at the lowest, you know. But, oh, yeah. Uh, if you could tell that version of Alex anything, or one piece of advice, uh, w- what would you say to her? Or do you think she would listen? Man. You couldn't tell me nothing back then, so I don't even know if I would listen to myself. <laughs> but I feel like I would just try to tell myself, like, you know, you are loved, even though you think you're not. Um, there are people that care about you, even though you might not think there is, and that it does get better, and that, you know, what you what you can do in, in life, you know, is a lot better than what you're living now, and to just, to just hang in there, you know? Yeah, keep going. That's yeah. right. Um, there's some people who listen to this podcast that uh, they're still struggling in active addiction and they listen for any number of reasons but do you, what advice would you have for them uh, or would it be the same as what you told your younger self I think it would be the same as what I just told my younger self because I know you know when I was deep in my addiction you know I didn't even though people did you know I didn't feel like you know, people cared about me because I didn't care about myself. You know, I didn't feel like people loved me because I didn't love myself at the time. Um, so I, I would just tell them that, you know, there are there are people that care about you. Um, there are people that love you, even though you might not be there at the point of loving and caring about yourself. Like, it is possible to get to that point. It is possible to do things that, do things you're proud of that outweigh the number of things that you've done that you aren't proud of and that it is possible to, to, you know, make the life that you want for yourself. Yeah. Even though it might not feel like it. I like that. It's never, it's never, uh, it's never too late, you know? Um, yeah. You can always bounce back, come back from anything. I think that I like to, 
the reason this is my favorite part is because it is you telling me is, you know, you're also telling everybody who listens is going to get from that. Like, you know, I watched her do it, if, especially if they've known you, if they've known you from when you were younger and they've seen the valleys that you've been through and the mountaintops, like, then mm-hmm. it's a lot more coming from someone, you know, that, that's been through it, you know, that you know has been through it, that you yeah. might have went through it with together at some point. Yeah. Um, I also have people that listen that um, they may not struggle with addiction firsthand, but it still touches them. You know, they might they might be a mother, uh, a son, a brother, a sister. Um, listening to see how they can help their loved one that's struggling actively. Um, do you have any advice for those people? Man, I would just say, you know, don't give up on them. Don't give up on them because uh, my dad didn't give up on me, um, and that's that's what saved my life in the end. Is you know he he ran out of things to do, but you know through tough love and doing what he felt like was the last resort that he could do was what saved my life. Um, so I would I would just say to just not give up on them because nobody's a lost cause. Yeah, don't be afraid to show that tough love, you know. Um, yeah. In a moment, they probably are going to cuss you like a dog. But <laughs> yeah. They'll come back and apologize for it, you know. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I did apologize to my dad. <laughs> Alex, I'm so proud of you. I, I hope that uh, one I day you can bring that uh, community paramedic program to Cherokee I think that would be a huge catalyst in um, for change in our community is being yeah. able to meet people rather with the stuff that can actually help them you know like right there in the moment like immediately yeah, yeah that's that's what I hope to do too um, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know do what I can to help start that for sure Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I, I pray you keep on going. I, um, I know that it's, I don't know, it's just beautiful to watch people come from the ashes to rise up again, you know. like. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm a big Harry Potter nerd. That's, I don't know, not <laughs> many people know that. But <laughs> it's like watching Fawkes rise back up, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As I just want to tell you, I'm proud of you, and thank you for sharing your story with me. I, I know it's it's helped me. I've learned stuff today that I didn't know before, and uh, yeah. just hearing your take on things is always refreshing. Hearing a new vantage point on something that you think you know a lot about, you know, it's, oh yeah, it's too much. You can always learn more. Oh yeah, thanks for asking me to do this. Uh, I didn't know how bad I needed to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah.